It says uh, that our second reading is 8 through 15. I'm only going to read uh, a portion of that because I want to come back to this chapter later. So we're, we're marching through uh, the book of Joshua, and, and I'm not going to slow that march down. But the second part of this chapter is a thing unto itself, and so I'm reserving that for another time, okay? So I, I'm not cheating you. It's, it, it'll happen later, all right? So I'm going to start reading at verse 8, and I'll read through verse 9. When the circumcision of the whole nation was finished... There remained at, in their place in the camp until they had healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today you have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would be with us. We thank you for gathering us here this morning, calling us from different places. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is present amongst us this morning, even as he was present in the inspiration of these words of Scripture. We ask that you would speak your word to us this day and that it would find root in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So it sure does seem like we all want to go to the promised land. But how many of us are willing to be circumcised to get there? The Israelites have crossed the Jordan on dry ground. A river in flood has been stopped in its tracks by Almighty God. And hundreds of thousands of Israelites with all of their animals cross from the east side to the west. And now they're camped inside the promised land, just barely right at the edge of the promised land, and plenty of the local people saw what happened. The crossing must have taken hours and hours. It must have made quite a noise and wave after endless wave of Israelites coming from the other side of the river, a river that should have stopped them. The noise and the reputation of the Israelites preceded them, In chapter 2, we learn that Rahab, a prostitute living in Jericho, knew what happened on the far side of the Jordan long before the first Israelites had shown up. You'll remember that Joshua had asked King Sion and King Og for the right to pass through their territory on the way to Canaan, but the kings refused. And instead, they sent out armies against the Israelites. And you remember the result. Those kings and all of the people in their cities were destroyed, every last one of them, and their territory became the possession of the children of Israel, a kind of unexpected bonus because they didn't have plans for those cities to begin with. And the moral of the story, if the people of God are on a mission from God and ask to pass through your territory, let them pass. Don't get in their way. Or better yet, join with them in where they're going. Too many times in too many churches, we cling to territories that we think belong to us. Perhaps by birthright, perhaps by long possession. And when the Spirit of the Lord raises up a band of saints and sends them on a mission passing through that territory that we think is ours, we say, hold on a minute. 
Where do you think you're going? This is my territory. This is my committee. This is my pew. This is my choir. This is my ministry. This is my program. This is my small group. And a fight ensues. A turf battle inside of the church. Here's my hope. My hope is that we always remember that the territory we occupy does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. The whole church, every pew, every program, every member belongs to the Lord. We don't own them. They belong to God, even if for a season we have been granted possession of or stewardship over them. I remember Russian Orthodox bishops complaining when after the fall of the Soviet Union, missionaries from other parts of the world went into Russia and began to evangelize. They complained that these new churches were stealing their people, as though you can own people like property, as though the people were serfs owned by the bishop overlords. Church leaders are shepherds of the sheep, but they don't own the sheep. The sheep belong to Jesus, who is the good shepherd, and he owns them because he bought them with his own blood. We, the church leaders, are under-shepherds working for the good shepherd, and if one of us under-shepherds doesn't feed the master's flock, then Jesus will lead those sheep to another under-shepherd who will. I have no patience with pastors and with churches who whine about other churches stealing their sheep. If we do our job, if we feed our people, they will stay and they will thrive. And not only will they thrive, they will also tell other hungry sheep where they can get a good meal. Remember Jesus' words to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Three times the master asked the question and three times he gives the command. And before it's over, poor Peter is at wit's end and he's deeply wounded in his spirit because indeed the master was rebuking him. Sometimes we claim that we love God, but we're not feeding any sheep. On Tuesday night, the elders of this church had a joint meeting with the deacons, something we do once a year. And the deacons, whose job it is to serve the physical and the temporal needs of people in this church and people in the surrounding community, the deacons brought to the session, uh, brought to the session's attention a group of homeless people who were living in a cheap motel about six miles from here. Yes, there is homelessness in our neighborhood, and those people don't look so much different than the rest of us. They are young families with children. They are senior citizens living on Social Security. They're regular people. And the deacons have been helping these people in the small ways that they are able, but they wanted the session to think about the bigger picture. Now, I want you to understand that 
our deacons are able to help people not only because they have tender hearts and willing spirits and can-do attitudes and good leadership. They're able to help people because you, the people of Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, put your money where your faith is and you contribute to the deacons fund. Every cent, 100% of the money that you give to the deacons fund goes to help people who live very close to us. Now, it's not really very much that we give to those people. It's a little food, a little help with rent sometimes. We're not fundamentally changing their circumstances. A box of groceries isn't going to turn around anyone's life. But what the deacons are doing says to those people in small ways that in the midst of their suffering that we, the church, walk with them. That in the midst of their suffering, we, the church, honor them as people made in the image of God. That in the midst of their suffering, we, the church, love them as we've been commanded to. The conversation between the deacons and the elders raised the larger question of how the church as a whole, not just the deacons who are focused on physical needs, but how the church as a whole... As a community of faith, as a fellowship of sinners, how we all together might actually make a real difference in the lives of these people that God has put into our path. God brought us these people. These people living in a cheap motel because they have no other place. God brought us these people and he's saying to us, feed my sheep. Our deacons are feeding a few hungry bellies, but the deeper hunger is spiritual. And people all around us are starving to death because they're not yet grafted into the true vine. Because they are still yet separated from the flock of the Good Shepherd. Jesus Christ is the source of life and health and sanity and order and purpose and direction and hope. And if we're cut off from the true vine, if we're separated from the flock, we are starving to death. A relationship with God is not an add-on. It's not an extra. It's not a bonus. You don't first get your life together and then go have a relationship with God. A relationship with God is the foundation. It's the beginning of a good life. And for many, many people whose lives have gone completely off the rails, what they need most of all is a restored relationship with God. They need to know the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. They need forgiveness of sins. They need adoption into the family of God. They need to be grafted into a church. They need to be reunited with the flock. And there, in community, with other redeemed sheep, they can begin to work out their salvation. God never intended for us to do these things alone and we should never walk the pilgrim path by ourselves. We're sheep. We need a flock. And we need a good shepherd. Now, I don't know where God is leading us with all of this. The session is still digesting uh, what the deacons have told them. We have plotted out some baby steps that we can do right away. But what God will do with all of this, I don't know yet. What I do know, however, is that our mission field 
is right here at our doorstep. It's actually very close. And all of these people that I'm talking to you about are so close that we can pick them up on the way to church on a Sunday morning. Jesus leaves the 99 sheep in the safety of the fold in order to go find the one sheep who strayed away and to bring them back home. Because Jesus' flock is not complete if all the sheep are not accounted for. And I believe that some of the sheep in Jesus' flock are living hand to mouth in a motel about six miles from here. And I believe that's our job to round them up. And I need your help. Those of you who are mature Christians, I need you to help me do the Lord's work in this case. All right, I'm supposed to be preaching about Joshua. Let me get back. Let me get back. Let me get back. Where did we leave this? Okay, so the children of Israel are on the west side of the Jordan River. And the people in the land, they know that something's up, that something's different about these interlopers. And the people in the land are scared. Verse 1 says this. As soon as... All the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. They've crossed the river. They're camped in the land and the locals are shaking In their boots. Human wisdom says that this is the moment when the Israelites should charge into the territory full speed ahead. Human wisdom says that this is the moment to take advantage of their momentum. To strike while the iron's hot. But God says, stop. Stop and All of you hundreds of thousands of men, take flint knives and cut off your foreskins. Verse 3 says, Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. I wonder if there's a historical marker beside the road there. Gibeath Haaraloth is to the east of Jericho between the Jordan and the and Jericho. In Hebrew, this name means hill of foreskins. Okay? It's not a town. It's not a place name. The place name is Gilgal. And Gilgal is in the floodplain of the Jordan, so it's rather flat. So what you need to see is that it isn't that the Israelites circumcised themselves on top of a hill and then called that the hill of the foreskins. Rather, they circumcised themselves on a plain and the number of foreskins was so large that it made a hill. A hill they called Gibeath Haaraloth, a pile of human flesh, hundreds of thousands of foreskins. Now I mention all of these details even though some of you men are squirming in your seats and some of you women are wondering if this is appropriate material for a sermon. I'm mentioning these details so that you see and that you feel the commitment that God demanded of His people prior to occupying the land. It's no small deal. It's a hill of foreskins. 
So let's talk about circumcision. Circumcision was not unique to the Jews. But for them, it was a response to God's command, and it was part of the law. It was a sacramental sign of the covenant between them and God. As a sacramental sign, it was a physical reality that pointed to a spiritual reality. In the church, this sacramental sign of the covenant is replaced by baptism, which is another physical reality that points to a spiritual reality. The covenant itself is a vow, a a solemn agreement between God and His people. God makes promises to His people. His people make promises to Him. The details of that covenant are spelled out in the law of Moses, which was given at Mount Sinai. And in that law, God promised His people protection and prosperity in the land if they kept their part of the covenant. To be a child of God is to be in a covenanted relationship with God. If you're outside of the covenant, you're not a child of God yet. Now the world preaches a false gospel that all people are the children of God. The Bible never says that. Jesus never said that. Yes, all people are created by God and made in His image, but a child of God is in a covenanted relationship with the Father, and that's not everybody. God told the people of Israel to affirm the covenant between Him and them and to mark that covenant with an external sacramental sign, namely circumcision. What God was saying was, before you can occupy the promised land, you need to be in a committed covenantal relationship with me. Now, a week ago, Saturday, two of our HVPC members, Josh Bruce and Rosie Morrison, were married to each other. They entered into a committed, covenanted relationship with each other. And they called on God as their witness as they made their vows to each other. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that mirrors God's relationship with His people. And oftentimes the marriage vows are surrounded by ceremony and celebration because they mark a solemn yet joyous entry into a new era. We are different people inside the covenant than we were outside the covenant. Those of you who remember when you were born again, a change takes place. There's a difference in your status. Before Josh and Rosie made their covenant vows to each other, they were single people. And now, after they have made their covenant vows, they will never again be single people. It's a new life. It's a new era. It's a new identity. The covenants we embrace form our identity. They make us who we are. I'm in a covenanted relationship with Ava Morrison. A huge part of who I am is wrapped up with being the husband of Ava. I'm in a covenanted relationship with Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. A huge part of my identity is wrapped up in being the pastor of this congregation. But even more than those two hugely important covenants is the covenant relationship I have with Almighty God. I'm a child of God. 
I'm a born-again Christian. I'm an adopted brother of Jesus. And when everything else is stripped away by the passage of time, that is the one identity that I will take with me into eternity. And it's an identity that's rooted in covenant. God calls the Israelites on the threshold of occupying the promised land to affirm His covenant with them. A covenant that was written on stone tablets. The law that was delivered on Mount Sinai. A covenant that is carried with the people in the Ark of the Covenant. And a physical, tangible sign of the covenant of the children of Israel a sign of the commitment of the children of Israel to that covenant was the act of taking a flint knife and cutting off a piece of their skin. That's a very dramatic sign. It's a sign of their total commitment to God's law, to God's leadership. Now some people have the mistaken idea that they can be committed to God but be indifferent to His law. That they can love God without loving His law. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If we're committed to God, if we love God, we are also committed to His law and we love His law. Here's what the Apostle John says. This is love for God. To keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John 5, 3. And if you don't believe John, maybe you'll believe Jesus. Who says this. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. There's no way to separate our relationship with God from obedience to God's law, to His covenant. And on the cusp of entering into the promised land, God tells the children of Israel to circumcise themselves. Circumcision is part of God's covenant with the children of Israel, but during the 40 years in the wilderness, they apparently ignored this painful part of God's law. And now God says, no, before you step into the promised land, I need to see your total commitment to this covenant relationship. I need you to be circumcised. And so they pull out the flint knives and they make a hill of flesh at Gibeath Ha'araloth. Another part of God's covenant that some people find as painful to think about as circumcision is tithing. Tithing is the biblical principle that we set aside the first 10% of our income and commit it to God's work. And in response, God promises to provide for anyone who tithes. In Micah 3.10, we hear God say, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Tithing, like circumcision, is a sign of our covenanted relationship with God. Tithing is an act of worship. And the beauty of tithing is that Anyone can do it. Tithing is not a flat fee or an admission price. Tithing is a percentage. And it's given at harvest time. 
But what makes the tithe a tithe is that it is the first fruit of the harvest, the first part that's gathered in. And that's very different from gathering in the harvest, using what you need, selling what you can, and then seeing what's left over. If we give God what's left over rather than a percentage of what we first gather, then we're not tithing. Now here are four things that I think are just terrific about tithing. First, tithing is proportional. It's a percentage of our income. And that means that no one is too poor to tithe. Recently, my daughter Mia sold a painting and she was very excited uh, about being able to give a tithe on what she had earned. And also, no one is so rich that they cannot give more. Unlike a club membership or the price of a car, which can be easy for a rich person to pay and difficult for a poor person, tithing is a percentage of the income. And the richer you are, the more you're able to give. There's no upper limit. Second, tithing is timed to the harvest. Now, not many of us are farmers anymore these days. In our congregation, I think it's one half of one percent uh, who, who farms in this place. But think about harvest for a moment. For most of us, our harvest comes once a week or once every two weeks or once a month. Harvest is the moment when the cash rolls in. A tithe is not a bill to be paid or an investment to be made before we receive our money. You don't pay the tithe until you actually have the money in hand. Third, tithing makes God a priority in our personal budgets. We build our budgets around our priorities. We spend our money on the things that are important to us. I buy a lot of books because books are important to me. I don't spend any money on anchovies because I hate anchovies. When we tithe, we build God into our personal budget. We say that God's a priority and we show that he's important to us. We budget for our cable bills. We should also budget for our tithe. And fourth, tithing is divine worship that you can actually touch. Now let's be very clear about this. When you put your money where your faith is, you actually feel it. It feels like worship when you give God money. Because there's always some other place that you could be using that money. But when you give it to God, you feel it. When you give your money to God, you feel yourself making a commitment to God. You feel yourself making God a priority. You feel yourself trusting God with your finances. Tithing is extremely worshipful. And people who tithe love it. And they love how it makes them feel close to God and committed to God and free in God. Tithers actually enjoy their worship life more than non-tithers, which might seem funny, but it's true. On the cusp of entering the promised land, God stops... The Israelites and tells them to cut off their foreskins. And you better believe that that hurt. Circumcision was a very real and a very concrete sign of their commitment to the covenant with God. When we give to the work of the church, sometimes that can hurt. 
But it is a very real and very concrete sign of our commitment to our covenant with God. God built tithing into the covenant with His people. He built intentional, proportional, harvest-timed giving into His relationship with His people. When we don't tithe, we miss out on that. And we miss out on His promises of provision and care. It sure seems like we all want the promised land. But we need also to be prepared to be circumcised to get there. Let us pray. Father God, for your care we give you thanks. And for your faithfulness to your covenants we give you thanks. We thank you for your invitation to us to be a part of that covenant. To be a part of what it is that you're doing in this world. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for daily bread. We thank you for the fact that you watch over us and know our needs. Father God, we pray that we might see your law as an opportunity to live into our love for you and our commitment to you. We pray that we would receive that yoke as a light yoke and that it would be a blessing to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.